Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in the American West, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Hausman. Today, we're joined by Jennifer Graber, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Texas at Austin and the author of The Gods of Indian Country, Religion and the Struggle for the American West, which was published by Oxford University Press this past April in 2018. Jen, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background as both a historian and a scholar of religion? So I went to a PhD program in religion at Duke, where my primary advisor um, works as a historian. So religious studies is a discipline that's got a lot of different methodologies people use within it. um, And that includes people who work mostly with historical materials and making historical interpretations. Uh, And for us in religious studies, that means doing history about religious things. Um, And so I had a training that was both in historical methods, but also uh, using and interacting with different theoretical ideas and methods um, that are active in a variety of forms of uh, the critical study of religion. Um, I got interested in history um, actually back, it was probably, I would say, in my master's degree. Um, as an undergraduate, I had to take a few history classes as a liberal art at a liberal arts college, um, but that wasn't my primary interest at the time. But I started getting interested in religious communities, um, including the ones that I was close to and had contact with as a young person, but then also ones that I became uh, interested in as an uh, as I grew up uh, and matured and moved to new places and interacted with new kinds of people. Um, it seemed to me that religion mattered in the lives of a lot of people. Um, and it was really also at the same time, there was a real renaissance in the study of American religion and the history of American religion. Um, it's a subfield that has really kind of taken off in the last 20 to 30 years. Um, so I kind of got interested in it right at a, the right time, I feel like. Um, and it's been a really kind of interesting journey ever since. And what first got you interested in the topic of Kiowa spirituality and of Christianity in the American West? Well, my very first book, it's a kind of a strange uh, connection, because if you see my first book, it's about um, the eastern part of the United States. Um, It's about Quakers, mostly, um, and it's about prisons. Um, So in some ways, it's a little bit of a stretch to see the connection. But as many historians of the American West know, there were lots and lots of Native people who were incarcerated after having some sort of resistance, uh, military or armed resistance to Americans throughout the period of the Indian Wars. And so the way I came in contact with the Kiowa story was through um, an account of their incarceration after they fought in the Red River War in the 1870s. Um, And not only did I kind of read an account of what their incarceration looked like, but also I ran into the kind of artistic materials they produced while incarcerated. Um, So I had access to, uh, and historians have access to, um, materials produced, historical materials produced by Kiowa people while incarcerated from a, at a time when they didn't have a written language, 
Um, and sometimes historians feel a little bit stymied when they don't have uh, the documents that make them feel most comfortable. Um, but to me, it was really exciting to actually see lots and lots of materials produced by Kiowa people in this period um, during inca their incarceration and in a time of real cultural upheaval. So it seemed to me like there was a real kind of treasure trove of resources to work with. Um, and that's where I got started. So before we get into the real substance of the book, I wanted to first ask you about the short but very relevant addendum that you put at the very front of the book itself, which is sort of a, an explanatory piece on the various terms that you use. Uh, I found it very useful and wondered why more scholars don't do something similar. So can you explain a little bit about why you opted to include this extensive note on terms used? It was partly because I imagine a couple of different scholarly audiences um, I wanted to be able to um, to talk to people who read primarily in religious studies, um, to be able to talk to people who are historians uh, of, of the United States in general, American religion in particular, or historians of the U.S. West. Um, and I wanted to talk to people in Native American and indigenous studies. Um, and even though there are some keywords and ideas that cross all three of those disciplines, um, there are many that don't. Um, and so I just wanted to basically give people a sense of uh, how I operated, like how would I use terms about religion and religious life um, and communicate about those in two disciplines, namely his history of the American West and also sometimes in Native American indigenous studies, where there's not a lot of reflection about those terms. Um, those terms can be used kind of unselfconsciously. Um, and then there's also terms in the field of religious studies um, maybe things coming out of Native American and indigenous studies that aren't very thought about very critically in religious studies. Um, so basically, I had those three audiences in mind, uh, hoping to make sure anyone coming from any of those three perspectives would get a sense of um, how I'm using words, what words are important, and what words have a, are connected to kind of a longer set of scholarly conversations. And as someone myself coming from a background in the history of the American West, but not in religious studies, it was very successful. It was, it was useful in that way. So I appreciated it very much. Oh, good. I'm glad it worked. <laughs> so why don't we start then with the basics? Can you tell us about Kiowa spirituality in the years prior to widespread European contact? And particularly, tell us about the significance of the image that graces the cover of the book, the Taime. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> So um, there's a real evolution in Kiowa ritual practice um, in the period um, prior to contact, right? And there's so much great scholarship right now that's talking about how Native worlds changed um, in the several hundred years before people were becoming uh, kind of associated with and in contact with um, Europeans and later Euro-Americans. So the Kiowa um, the way that they understand and talk about their origin story is that they were from the Yellowstone River Valley um, up in Montana. Uh, and at that time, they were not uh, a kind of classic plains culture, right, that they had an, a longer history um, in the mountains, um, but then eventually migrated eastward into the northern plains. Um, and so it was in that migration that they began to meet other Plains nations, especially the Crow that they had contact with, um, and really took up the kind of classic horse uh, and buffalo hunting culture that emerged on the Plains. Um, and so they kind of they went through a bit of a transformation religiously in that period, um, because from the Crow, they um, received the Sundance, um, which is a practice uh, kind of uh, across the Plains that develops in this period. So they 
got something new in their kind of ritual repertoire by moving to the plains before they ever met uh, anyone from Europe. Um, so things were happening there. Eventually, they made another migration to the southern plains. Um, the northern plains got very uh, a little bit crowded, uh, and they were um, kind of pushed out, especially by uh, the Lakota. They moved southward, um, where they then um, became uh, allies with the Comanche. Uh, and there, they actually brought that Sundance into the southern plains. And one of the things they did in their um, connections with the Comanche is that they also taught that dance uh, and that ritual repertoire to the Comanche. So there were all sorts of things changing before they already had um, or before they ever had contact with either Spanish, um, Mexican, French, um, and then later American. So, um, but the Sundance really was crucial for them. Um, usually it was practiced once a year. Every once in a while they might miss a summer for a variety of reasons, um, but it was a way to bring people together who most of the time would have been scattered into smaller encampments. Uh, it brought everyone together uh, in a ritual that took several days um, to perform. Uh, in many ways, it also had all sorts of social functions as well, um, like a big family reunion, opportunities for courtship, opportunities for diplomacy. Um, but there was a kind of crucial religious uh, ritual at the center uh, in which people made offerings um, and gave thanks for especially the sun and the buffalo. Um, so there was this kind of primary religious ritual. Um, but there were other kind of smaller things as well. This was uh, the Kiowa, like many Plains nations, uh, had vision quest practices, uh, different kinds of healers, uh, both male and female, um, that used both um, kind of natural medicines and natural uh, elements from the environment, as well as uh, kind of spiritual practices around healing. Um, so they had many things or, or variations upon um, rituals and uh, practices that many Plains cultures at this time had. And eventually encounter does occur with uh, Europeans and later Americans. So can you tell us a bit of the history of Kiowa interactions with Americans in particular, um, since the book begins nominally in chapters one and two in the beginning of the 19th century? Um, how, more specifically, how were they and their allies, particularly the Comanche, how were they enmeshed in continental-wide events in the beginning of the 19th century? Well, if you've ever read uh, The Comanche Empire, right, which is a book all of us Western historians uh, encounter at some point, right, we know that the Comanche and their allies, which include the Kiowa, really are kind of powerful, a kind of powerful presence on the Southern Plains um, at the moment that the Americans acquire uh, that territory through the Louisiana Purchase. Um, and so at this period, the Kiowa, um, you know, at the time of the purchase and in the few decades afterward, you know, they are, along with the Comanche, they have some of the biggest horse herds on the plains. They are raiding into what's now New Mexico, all the way down as far as Mexico City. Um, they're involved in vast Indian trade networks. Um, that go south, west, and east uh, every once in a while, bringing them in contact with uh, the French. Um, so they have this, like, they have a very powerful um, presence on the plains. Um, they really are in charge, right? Like, you know, because they are allied with the Comanche and the Comanche are so powerful in this period, you know, they, they are doing well. Um, in the period of the Louisiana Purchase and in the decades afterward. Um, one of the things that interested me about the Kiowa is that their encounter with Americans is somewhat late. Um, they don't get a lot of Americans coming through the Southern Plains um, in the same way, like once you get the um, gold rush, 
There's a lot of people moving north of them. Um, there's a lot of uh, people trying to make their way to the Pacific Northwest as well. Um, but the Kiowas are in a part of the country um, that one explorer in the 1820s calls the Great American Desert. Um, and a lot of Americans don't have a lot of interest there. They don't see a lot of potential, uh, commercial potential. And so they also, one of the things about the Kaiwan Comanche is that they're able to really kind of hold on uh, to that territory uh, and really kind of live in a way that like determine uh, determine their own way of living uh, a lot longer uh, than I would say some other nations where that are further north, especially where they're really having to kind of, by the time you get to the gold rush, there's a lot of conflict, conflict already. In the period a bit later, in the 1820s and particularly the 1830s, the period of forced removal and American native conflict, particularly in the North American Southeast, the movement of native peoples throughout the continent causes, as you tell it, significant upheaval. Um, how did the Kiowa turn particularly to spirituality and to sacred power as a means of handling these new situations? You're absolutely right that the movement, uh, the, the removals that happen even prior to the Indian Removal Act, uh, and especially those that happen after 1830, um, cause big disruption in Indian country. Um, and the Kiowa are in the western half of uh, Indian country, or Indian territories, excuse me. Um, they're in the western half of that territory, but the eastern side is filling up with people being forcibly removed um, from the other side of the Mississippi. Uh, it means there's more stress on uh, the buffalo herds in terms of hunting. Um, there are more people, the, the area just gets more crowded. Um, there are some American explorers starting to move through after 1830, um, some trading posts being created. So there begins to be a sort of some conflicts over resources. Um, but I would say in this period, even though there are more conflicts um, and there's kind of more kind of some precarious things making life in Indian territory difficult, the Kiowa and the, their Comanche allies are still doing pretty well um, in the 1830s. And I think I really see that as a period of continuity. Um, they're doing their Sundance practices. Uh, they're keeping their history uh, through things like uh, calendar record keeping. Um, I see a real continuity there. I see uh, where I begin to see some kind of changes um, in ritual practice, it gets a little bit closer to when lots of Americans start to um, have an interest in settling and creating reservations. Um, that's the moment where I see a little bit more kind of ritual change. And when did Kiowa's first encounter Christianity and which particular churches or subsets of Christianity played significant roles in these early encounters? So once again, it's a story that has a lot later date uh, than many other uh, tribal nations, even those on the plains, um, they do not get a missionary until uh, the 1870s, um, which is a lot later. Uh, if you think about uh, the Lakota um, and other groups further north. Um, so one of the reasons they don't get any missionaries uh, until that date is that um, their reservation is not established until the late 1860s. Um, and even when it is, um, it's administered by Quakers. Um, pretty quickly, Quakers are assigned to run their reservation. Um, but the Quakers actually don't send any official missionaries there. Um, they send people to administer the reservation. Um, and those Quakers actually hold religious services for themselves. Um, and they, I'm sure, had an openness to... Uh, uh, Native people attending, but that's not really, they weren't really running uh, an evangelistic mission. Um, that doesn't happen until the late 1870s, 
when um, an Episcopal minister arrives uh, on the reservation, bringing with him um, one man who had uh, one Kiowa man who had been incarcerated after the Red River War, um, spent three years in prison, and then spent uh, another few years in a homestay in upstate New York. Um, being taught how to be an Episcopal minister. So when uh, the first American Episcopal missionary comes in the 1870s, he brings with him a Kiowa man who has actually been ordained an Episcopal deacon. Um, It's not a very successful mission. um, And actually very quickly after this uh, Kiowa who's been made an Episcopal deacon about uh, not even a few months after he returns to the reservation, he goes to a Sundance. The Episcopal missionary gets really upset about it. Um, so that's a pretty short-lived and not very successful um, uh, kind of uh, encounter or effort at bringing uh, Christianity. Um, but after allotment um, legislation is passed in the 1880s, a lot more um, missionaries, both Catholic and Protestant, make an effort to get established uh, among the Kiowa and Comanche. So you really actually don't see them until the late 1880s, early 1890s, which is so late um, in mo- in terms of the kind of standard mission history um, of American, especially Protestant missions to Native people. It was one of the things I found most surprising about the story that you tell because it subverts kind of the, the, the knee-jerk narrative that's often told about a religion, particularly Christian religion in the American West. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's one of the reasons I really liked it, that it's so late and actually Kiowa people are practicing like they're still doing their Sundance into 1890. Um, and we don't get to necessarily hear a lot of stories like that. Right. Explain, if you would, the concept of the Friends of the Indian, because you describe it as particularly salient in understanding, among other things, Christian missionary work within Kiowa society at this later period. So what did that term mean throughout American history to those that claimed that mantle? So it has kind of two different meanings. Um, there are... Um, There's actually an organization that gets started in uh, the later part of the 20th century that they call themselves the Friends of the Indian. So they have that official title. Um, It's a mostly Protestant organization. Um, But actually, this phrase, uh, friend of the Indian or the Indian's friend, is something that um, a variety of reform-minded Americans used. Um, and And I see a pickup in that language in the debates about Indian removal. Um, So this is language that goes back into at least the 1820s, um, where people begin to talk about whether or not removal is good for Native people or not. And so they then, depending on which uh, kind of side of that argument they're taking, will talk about themselves as the Indian's friend. Um, So during the 1820s, when removal was being debated, uh, you know, in a very heated way, there were people who advocated for removal and people against removal, or at least Cherokee removal, right? Like sometimes uh, there were people who could advocate lots of other kinds of removal, but they were really concerned about the particular situation of the Cherokee and forced removal. Um, But even those folks who were against certain kinds of removals also talked about themselves as the Indian's friend. Um, So I think this became a kind of important benevolent identity constructed by different types of reformers. Um, And I think it was an identity that um, especially when people used it to contrast their own uh, activities and plans for Native people with perhaps uh, uh, people in the military or uh, people who had a very kind of strong and forceful approach to Native people, um, they contrasted that and saw themselves as the Indian's friend, which they really kind of defined as a kind of pacifist and benevolent um, approach. And 
I think one of the things that did was really mask the other kinds of colonial violence that they took part in. You know, these were people who called themselves the Indian's friend, but, you know, were advocates of child removal um, and boarding schools. So I think that mantle um, kind of giving themselves that name and contrasting themselves with the military um, kind of gave them this authorization um, to act as if what they were doing was peaceful. And as you alluded to earlier, um, the years immediately surrounding the American Civil War were particularly crucial in Kiowa history. Can you tell us a bit about the various treaties and the other changes that went on during this period and what role Kiowa beliefs and spirituality and practice played in either mitigating them or just for, for coping with these changes in general? Yeah, so the Kiowas uh, had signed two, uh, at least two major treaties with the Americans prior to the Civil War, and those really had to do with um, kind of allowing safe passage for Americans who wanted to use the Santa Fe Trail. Um, it wasn't about actual American occupation of those lands, uh, and it wasn't uh, any way in any those treaties did not necessarily um, constrict Kiowa activity in any way. Um, but of course, after the Civil War. There are all sorts of military people who are kind of uh, designated to now go and fight in the West, right, and bring uh, Native nations who had not been constrained, uh, bring them to heel. Um, and so the Kiowa are among uh, kind of an assortment of Indian nations who experience violence at the hands of the military uh, in the post-Civil War years. And it's, at, it's very quickly after the Civil War, just a few years later, that they sign a treaty to establish their reservation. Um, and quickly after that, the military creates a fort, uh, Fort Sill, which is still in operation, uh, that's really in the heart of Kiowa and Comanche country. Um, so signing that treaty um, constrained them in terms of the lands that they could occupy, um, it had some limits in terms of how they could sustain themselves with buffalo hunting. And then, of course, Quakers were sent very quickly to run the reservation uh, with a sort of civilizing program uh, put forward by Ulysses S. Grant. So those post-Civil War years brought a host of changes. Um, and in them, I think Kiowas still tried to kind of keep their ritual life going. Um, they kept doing their Sundance. Um, they were still doing healing. And really, neither the Quakers nor the military nearby um, could do a lot to stop those things from happening. Um, but I would say um, that change, that scenario did not last for long. Um, pretty quickly, Kiowas and other uh, Native people in the region, uh, Comanches, Cheyenne, Arapaho, um, planned a pan-Indian revolt um, with an effort to push the Americans out of the region. Um, and there were um, actually some prophetic figures among, most, among both the Kiowa and the Comanche um, that arose uh, and really tried to empower this effort. Um, and if you've read about other um, folks who have been identified as Native prophets, um, uh, there, these, there were some kind of uh, some similarities here in terms of what happened among the Comanche and Kiowa. Um, the Kiowa a uh, prophet who rose up in the 1870s. Um, he claimed that he was given a vision. Uh, he had talked to the dead. The dead had given him the power to be immune from bullets um, and had given him the ability to know when a battle would be successful or not. Um, and so he basically was promising to use those powers um, with the people in their revolt against the Americans. Um, so there were also, along with this kind of steady effort to keep 
rituals going, there were also these new kind of prophetic uh, voices coming forward. And we can see those kind of throughout Native American history. You've alluded a couple times now to the events of the so-called Red River War. Can you walk us through what that conflict was and why it was such a pivotal moment that that wrought a lot of changes in Kiowa society and Kiowa history? Sure. Um, So the Kiowa Reservation was put in place in 1868. um, And so Kiowas were living within uh, restricted lands, um, uh, even though they often actually went off the reservation um, in this period. Um, But the longer that the reservation was in place, um, there were more and more restrictions put on them, uh, especially on Kiowa and Comanche efforts to leave the reservation either to hunt or raid. Um, and this began to cause a bunch of conflicts between uh, the Native people and the Quaker administrators, but also Native people and the military um, at Fort Sill. Um, and so this kind of, there were a few kind of uh, explosive uh, episodes here and there. There was an attack. Uh, Kiowa and Comanches attacked a wagon train in Texas in 1871. That almost broke out into a war, but then didn't. Um, yeah, there were kind of some explosive events um, between the military and uh, Kiowa and Comanche in this period. But finally, in 1874, um, there were enough people um, empowered by these prophetic voices uh, that they decided to actually kind of go on the attack themselves. Um, and so starting in 1874, um, there were um, a kind of pan-Indian coalition, Kiowas, Comanches, Cheyenne, and Arapaho, who began to attack some American outposts. Um, and then a big uh, stream of the military, like all kinds of reinforcements were brought into the region to suppress the um, pan-Indian movement, uh, which the Americans did successfully um, by mid-1875. Uh, and it's that point where really um, Kiowas and Comanches um, that's the end of their military resistance to the Americans. Um, and they're uh, kind of real kind of, I would say like they realize like they cannot overpower the Americans to kind of keep their way of life going, um, that they're going to have to start to live within the restraints of the reservation. And it's also when, uh, several dozen men are sent to prison in Florida, um, which is a really kind of big event in Kiowa life because they don't have practices of uh, taking prisoners of war. Um, so this is a kind of strange event in terms of military practice. Um, like suddenly all these relatives are being taken away and there's no idea when or if they'll ever come back. Um, and many of the ways that Kiowas then adjusted their cultural practices after this period were all for the hope of getting their relatives back. Um, there was a kind of willingness to uh, build new houses, plant fields of corn, with the hope that they would please the American officials and have them return their relatives. And as you said earlier, attempts to Christianize um, the the Kiowas does does begin in earnest towards the end of the 19th century. Can you talk a little bit more about those efforts, and particularly about the role of education and schooling in those efforts? Yeah. So um, as I noted earlier, there was an Episcopal missionary who had tried to make a sort of early effort, um, but it's in the late 1880s, um, right after allotment legislation, that a bunch of missionaries come in. Um, And so uh, there are representatives from the Methodist Church, uh, the Southern version um, of the Methodist Church. Uh, They established a mission. There's a Catholic mission established by some Benedictine priests. Um, There's 
uh, multiple Baptist missions are started, a Presbyterian one gets started. So all sorts of mission societies uh, get their eye on the Kiowa and Comanche Reservation, start sending their missionaries there. Um, and they, at times, at least the Protestant ones, kind of worked together a little bit. Um, they would help each other as new missionaries arrived, but they were all starting their own little churches and their own little schools, and they were all vying for um, attendees at both of them. So especially between the Protestant missionaries and the Catholic, um, there could be some real competition. Um, and sometimes Kiowas would deal with multiple missionaries because um, uh, there could be benefits to those associations. Um, so I have found examples of uh, Kiowa people who might have sent their children to the Catholic boarding school um, in one part of the reservation, but also they were friends with the Methodist missionary or a Baptist missionary and might have uh, reason uh, to relate to them and participate in activities in that congregation. So there were a kind of lot of interesting ways that Kiowa people um, uh, interacted with this really kind of quickly a diverse religious field that occurred uh, in the early 1890s. And yet, in, in spite of, of these efforts and um, in the face of other great hardships in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Kiowa spirituality and, and practices, they persist. Can you tell us in what ways did they, they do so and, and how did those efforts um, affect the, the society itself? Yeah, so there's a real effort to keep certain kinds of older practices going. Um, so even once, uh, even after the Red River War, um, the Kiowas uh, continue to practice the Sundance in the summers. And this is a really arduous uh, <laughs> um, undertaking once they're in this period. Often there are soldiers from Fort Sill sent to monitor the activities. Um, it can be actually very difficult to find, um, to perform the ritual, you need a buffalo hide. Um, but of course, the herds are being depleted um, in the 1880s. And at times they actually buy hides from Texas ranchers uh, in order to hold a Sundance. Um, so there's actually, it's really not easy um, to perform it, but they continue to perform it all the way to 1890 when finally the reservation administrator um, basically says you can't, they don't, he doesn't give permission anymore for them to perform it. Um, there's also efforts to keep things, uh, healing practices going, uh, visions. Um, so there's efforts uh, to maintain, but there's also a lot of change. Like, once we get to the period of the Red River War and there's so much stress and strain on the people, um, there's also a real kind of uh, seeking um, and an openness to trying some new things. Uh, and in this case, it can be um, there was an interest in uh, things offered by other native peoples, uh, namely peyote. Um, Kiowas and Comanches had long had experience uh, and had been in contact with other native people south of them who had used peyote for, you know, centuries. Um, but it wasn't something that was really, um, uh, that had been done among them. They had not really brought those practices back to their own homeland. Um, but starting in the 1870s, Kiowas begin uh, to uh, experiment with ritual peyote practice. Um, and that grows by the 1890s. There's actually a lot of peyote, uh, ritual peyote meetings uh, on the reservation. Um, it's something that could be done at a smaller scale, um, it can be just one teepee in a small part of the reservation rather than a huge Sundance gathering. Um, and I think it was especially helpful for those people who were seeking healing, right? This is also a time where there's a lot of illness um, and malnutrition. Um, and so peyote, I think, also uh, 
as it's understood to bring healing was really important. And that's part of the reason it was integrated in this period. And then there's lots of people who start to make contacts with missionaries. Uh, and once again, healing, seeking healing was another kind of major impetus for people to um, make contact with missionaries. Um, there are a lot of the nuns who worked at the Catholic school um, left diary accounts uh, and talked about how when they went and offered medical services, that was one of the ways that they actually then were able to convince people to send their children to school. Um, if they had had a successful experience of healing after illness, uh, then they would trust the sisters uh, to have their children at school. So I think healing and seeking healing at a time of a lot of um, illness um, was a big part of, of why people were trying to look for new ritual options. Often, particularly in older uh, history books about Native American history and the history of the American West generally, um, the late 1880s or early 1890s marks a certain kind of end point with things like the passage of the Dawes Act and the, the massacre at Wounded Knee. But you end instead in the early 20th century, and more, moreover, you indicate, in my opinion rightfully, that the forces that are acting upon and acting within Kiowa society have not ceased even today. So how, among all these other things that I, I just mentioned, how would you say that Americans continue to cast themselves in certain ways as friends of the Indian well into the 20th and even the 21st century? Yeah, so I mean, I think I was really amazed by the kind of persistence of uh, religious practices that had been uh, kind of performed for generations um, and the willingness to try new things and give them a kind of Kiowa content or Kiowa quality. Um, you know, Kiowa churches um, operate in the Kiowa language in this period and Kiowa people who are associated with Christianity, they write Kiowa hymns and it's one of the ways the language is preserved um, uh, into, into the present. Um, they are folks who use the ghost dance uh, as the ghost dance movement stretched across the West and they adapted it to their own situation. Uh, and they continued it way long after Wounded Knee, um, which is when many people think about the end of that movement. So for me, I really wanted to kind of keep that story going. Um, and one kind of reasonable way to kind of think about that is that they were still fighting for their land. Um, all the way to the Supreme Court into the early 20th century. So they had this kind of battle for their land. And I see this persistence in their effort at religious practice to sustain their people kind of going into the 20th century. Um, I do think also, though, you know, that whole organization, the Friends of the Indian, that lasted um, also for a long time. And many people who were in um, the Friends of the Indian um, organization and others kind of mission-minded folks, um, when they began to think about the frontier as closing or as the Indian problem, in quotes, of course, um, being solved, they then immediately turned their eyes to places like the Philippines um, and, and talked very explicitly about how their project in the Philippines and what they wanted to see for people in the Philippines was they needed to follow that model of um, what was done among Indian nations earlier. So I see a real kind of continuity in terms of that continual construction of benevolent identity um, through forms of American empire. Um, and then I think, you know, I, I see it today. Um, and I talk about this a little bit at the end of the book, and I imagine it might like ruffle some feathers. Um, but I still see it in terms of how we talk about American intervention um, in places around the world. 
um, places where their cultures look uh, quite different uh, from what mainstream American life might look like. Um, I do see this continued um, sense of that one can be liberal minded, uh, but at the same time want to totally transform how other people live, even against their will. Um, and even be willing to kind of use the armed forces to help it happen. Um, so I still see that um, that approach uh, to people who live in different ways. Um, it's still with us. And my last question is about sources, since the book is is just full of wonderful images and demonstrates a really, I found, very deep knowledge of Kiowa history and Kiowa oral accounts of their own history as well. So can you tell us a bit about the sources that you used and what people you consulted when researching this book? Yeah, um, I got so lucky. Um, there are so many sources. And, and I, you know, when you talk to historians about um, projects where you're dealing with a population that might not have a written language um, in the period you're looking at, you know, there can often, historians sometimes kind of throw up their hands like, oh, there's no sources. Um, but honestly, you just have to get creative. Um, and for, for me, if I was willing to, if or because I was willing to look at how, at material culture, um, and use the work of anthro museum anthropologists and art historians, um, uh, that, that kind of opened up this whole world of sources, um, whether they're ledger drawings, um, there are these kind of calendar accounts that are kind of symbolic, where symbolic markers, uh, uh, tell of uh, historical events. Um, there's all this material production in teepees and shields. Um, and then later there's a lot of oral history, um, that was taken, uh, there was a bunch of oral histories, um, performed in the 1930s and then again in the 1960s, all of which have, uh, been kept and many of them transcribed. Um, and then there's a whole movement among Kiowas themselves at, uh, the preservation of tribal history. Um, so I have in my visits up to Oklahoma, I go to places like the Oklahoma Historical Society, which have incredible records, uh, mostly from the American point of view, right? Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, that kind of uh, more traditional historical record, um, which I definitely accessed and spent a lot of time reading microfilms about Bureau of Indian Affairs um, and uh, missionary archives. But then uh, I would also consult with the Kiowa Tribal Museum um, and talk to them about the sources that they found important. Um, so I had, I really think I had almost like too many sources to deal with. It took a really long time, um, but it was really great because there were just the, there were, the sources were so varied. Uh, and to me that helped a lot of different kinds of perspectives come forward. It sounds like hard work, but it paid off because I really enjoyed the book. It was, it was an excellent read really. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. So I know that the book has only been out for something like two or three weeks now, but now that it is out, do you have an idea of what you're going to be working on next, uh, of a next project at all? Well, I ran into and encountered a lot of Kiowa material culture that could not, did not necessarily fit the scope of the book, um, including some uh, ledger notebooks with drawings um, that have never been written about, um, uh, and some Kiowa calendars um, that have also never been written about. So I've been working, I've got a couple of small things going, um, trying to do some digitizing projects. Um, and I'm working with the Kiowa Tribal Museum uh, to maybe bring a sort of digitized calendar 
website uh, to them because all of these calendars are kind of scattered in museums around the country. Um, and then I have some ideas about some ledger, um, some work, further work on ledger um, notebooks and how religion is represented in uh, the Kiowa ledger drawings. Um, but I also honestly like I want to just read some other stuff for a while too. Um, you know, when you're writing a, when you're writing something, you have to read all of these things that help you do your book. Like I want to read about the 20th century for a while <laughs> or maybe the 17th um, and just kind of get myself out of um, this really tight focus that I've had for a while. Um, but I know, I know I'll come back because um, there was so much, so much great source material um, that couldn't make it into the book, uh, and that could do I could do some other things with. Well, I look forward to seeing those digitized projects, and um, I, I hope you get a chance to to read some, maybe even some fiction. You know, <laughs> I know. Would, would exactly. <laughs> well, Jennifer Graber is associate professor of religious studies at the University of Texas at Austin, and her new book, The Gods of Indian Country: Religion and the Struggle for the American West, is just out from Oxford University Press. Jen, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It was really fun. Thank you. 